The episode of I Think Therefore I Fan you're about to listen to discusses the following works, House, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and Space Force. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. So, that music can only mean one thing. And I could tell you what that one thing means, but maybe it'd be better to consult an expert. <laughs> so, today's topic is expertise, right? And super ex- salient topic right now. Super salient. Yeah, yeah. This, um, it hits on lots of points. And we have an expert today on expertise, which is sort of nice. Um, it seems like we're in a, a position where not only do we need experts, but we need to have good, frank conversations about who experts are, mm-hmm. how seriously they take experts, yeah. um, what role they play, and, and the limitations of expertise. Oh, yep. Yeah. It's critical. It's critical. I mean, it's, it's, it's maddening right now that yeah. people are unwilling to listen to experts. And as we move into this new uh, phase of this whole coronavirus horror show, but a better phase, hopefully, where yeah. we're distributing a vaccine it just becomes more and more important that people are making evidence-based judgments and we don't always have we in fact we don't have the evidence at our disposal as laypersons so that the best thing we can do epistemically is to rely on experts yep and this episode's coming out right before thanksgiving and the experts are saying stay home don't have um, large gatherings mm-hmm. And um, we'll see in a couple of weeks that millions, literally millions of Americans um, chose to ignore that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're, for those reasons, we're, we're very glad to be talking to um, Dr. Jamie Watson today. And, um, but this won't be a doom and gloom interview. It's a fun interview, just in case people are getting a... Yeah, yeah, no, he's, he's very, very engaging and there's um, a lot of optimism there. Yeah. Sh- shall we turn to the interview? Let's do it. Okay, let's bring it on. Today we're talking to Dr. Jamie Watson. Jamie's an assistant professor of medical humanities and bioethics at University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, and he's a clinical ethics consultant for two hospitals in Little Rock, Arkansas. His primary research is in expertise studies and medical ethics. So thanks for joining us, Jamie. Yeah, welcome. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Great. So let's um, dive right in. You've got a a book out fairly recently um, on expertise called expertise, right? So yes. how are you conceiving of expertise? What is it? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and I, I think w- what's most interesting about expertise studies is that it comes from, um, it can be approached from a lot of different fields. And when I started looking into expertise, I noticed that these fields hadn't been talking to each other for a long time. Mm-hmm. So there are sociological studies of expertise, psychological studies, philosophical studies. 
But I think there's a lot of commonality that underwrites expertise, regardless of where it's approached from. But I think that having the fields talk to one another actually um, produces some some positive benefits for, for understanding what it is. And so I think that if you look across disciplines and you look at particular examples, I think a general conception of expertise can be summed up as a high degree of competence in a domain at a time. Mm-hmm. And in one hand, this captures what expertise studies have, have been looking at. They've been looking at people who are very, very good at what they do. Uh, and in one sociologist's terminology, they're people who know what they're doing, uh, know what they're talking about. Uh, but it also is, is a little bit vague. It's, it's not completely satisfying because a high degree of competence, well, how high? And what do we mean by competence? Is it knowledge? Is it skill? Is it some combination? And what's a domain? How are they carved? What are the relationships among domains? And what do I mean by domain at a time? So I think there are a lot of questions that this definition opens, but I think it captures a lot of what expertise studies has been doing for the last 30 or 40 years. Mm-hmm. Nice. So it hits most of the paradigm cases um, nicely. What do you think? Uh, what do you think philosophy uniquely brings to the definition of expertise? Is there uh, is there a reason to think philosophy is making a significant contribution? I think that's a great question, and, and the way that philosophers have traditionally approached it has been through sort of a very narrow lens of, of expertise as a certain kind of knowledge. And so they've tried to identify what it means to have expert authority in terms of how much knowledge someone has in a domain. And I actually think that this is rather limited once you start comparing and contrasting different kinds of expertise, trying to dive into what makes an expert, and then the differences among different uh, disciplines like psychology and sociology, I don't think it really captures much. And so what I tried to do was approach the topic philosophically, but from a social epistemic perspective. So social epistemology is the study of how knowledge is acquired and distributed socially rather than just sort of individually how we gain and assess evidence. And so what I thought was that the conceptual tools of philosophy can help bring these disciplines together and speak to one another by developing a conceptual framework that allows for interdisciplinary conversation. Would you say expertise is fleeting in philosophy? So um, I'll use myself as an example, right? It's been um, you know 20 plus years since I completed my doctoral program. Um, at that time, I felt like I knew as much as anybody in the world on one very you know, narrow topic, right, um, pertaining to skepticism. Um, I now feel like I know, I don't know, 20% of the literature on that topic. Subsequently, um, you know, I, I still know the classics. I know Descartes and so forth. But the, the people that were being discussed at the time um, the cast of characters has changed, right? Um, do I lose my competence? That, in other words, what's the out of time doing? Um, or yeah, or am I an expert on 1990s skepticism and, <laughs> and I'm that forever? Right. Yeah, so I think it's a great question. And I think it's interesting that a lot of different fields, uh, regardless of who's studying expert expertise, acknowledge that expertise can be lost over time. I think we see this in some of Plato's dialogues where he talks about uh, knowledge of medicine and knowledge of um, piloting ships can be lost if it's not maintained. We see this in the psychological literature that if people don't maintain, for example, uh, memory competence or um, their skill at a certain kind of sport, they lose it over time. And 
you know, this is also the, the domain at a time thing gives us a nice way of explaining the reason that, say, an Olympian in the 1960s, it wouldn't be an Olympian today, even if we could just sort of mm -hmm. transplant them into the 21st century, because the state of the field at that time uh, was much slower or much uh, less competent in certain ways than it is today. Now, some of that has to do with technology. I think David Epstein has done a really nice job of showing how differences in, for example, with track and field, differences in shoe technology and track technology and putting the, the blocks in to start from uh, really change the shape of the field. Nevertheless, we've learned training techniques that allow people to improve today even more than they did in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And so not only can I think, do I think expertise can be lost if it's not maintained, I think that it's um, the domains change in such a way that experts can be left behind as new qualities emerge, whether you know, it's an increase in competence or an in increase in the way competence is trained. So can you say more about what you mean about competence in a domain? Yeah, so it's um, an interesting phenomenon that, that the philosophers have focused so much on knowledge. And the questions that, that come out of that are things like, well, how much knowledge? And how would you quantify the number of propositions in a domain that you would need? And, and who would say that you had enough? Like, how would you sort of figure out who had enough in order to be called experts? And, and is it competent? Is it knowledge relative to another group of people? So do experts have to have, you know, do they have to be a minority so that everyone else has a certain level of knowledge and experts have this sort of um, privileged access to this you know, domain. Uh, but then you would ask, well, what if everyone else on earth disappeared? Would these people no longer be experts? And those are sort of odd questions, right? And so I think what counts as competence is going to depend on the sorts of questions that are raised by a domain. And so, you know, you can have expertise in, uh, in say, playing the violin. You know, there are clearly standards standards for what counts as a high degree of competence in violin playing. And part of what that's going to depend on is what the state of the domain is, how other people are playing. It's also going to depend on the way that you acquired it, the sort of years and type of practice that you put in. But that's just the domain of violin playing. It can take the, the domain of, of novel writing. You know, the domain of novel writing has a very different set of standards. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, uh, it's not writing more quickly. It's not writing more fluently. The, the process may be grueling and grinding, but, you know, the end product has a certain set of standards. And you may get there a whole lot of different ways. You know, Faulkner is said to have written one book in about a month, whereas so many other novels take 10 years. And, and so expertise is really going to depend upon the domains, the, the questions that are raised in a domain, and I think competence is going to then reflect the sorts of questions that are asked. Yeah. Uh, well, did you have did you have a pop culture reference for competence in the domain that you wanted to talk about? Um, let's see. So I think there are lots of really interesting examples in, in pop culture about how of expertise and how expertise is exhibited. And I think House MD is one of these really interesting cases, right? House, is, uh, House has got this sort of conflicting set of qualities. On one hand, he's super highly competent in his domain, so much so that he works in this medical facility where they study rare diseases and he's able to you know, discover and treat these rare diseases. Uh, the problem with House, of course, is that he doesn't do it very efficiently. He, he, there's a lot of stuttering and, and failure along the way. And so there's some questions about whether, you know, what sort of expertise House has. And, um, you, you know, he doesn't listen very well. He dis, He's very dismissive of people who tell him things about their condition and about their experiences. 
Uh, and so on one hand, you think, well, House is just highly, highly competent in a domain, very qualified, is good at what he does, except when it comes to certain aspects of doing what he does, which is getting to the heart of the disease quickly and treating it the first time rather than, you know, killing someone and then bringing them back to life and then treating them again. And, you know, it's this sort of trial and error. So there are interesting questions about expertise in that. One is that, you know, do experts always have to get it right? And I think the answer is no. I think experts get it wrong a lot. And I think that that's part of being an expert is, you know, or becoming an expert is learning how to fail in a way that's productive. Yeah. Philosophy, uh, I think, really exemplifies this, right? Because you've got you know, just in any sub-discipline, a whole bunch of people on one side of the issue, a whole bunch of people on the other side, they're all considered experts and necessarily, you know, half or more are wrong, right? So... Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And, and we and we make a lot of progress. I mean, even going back to the the Socratic method by challenging and recognizing the ways in which our basic assumptions are, are faulty in some way. Uh, and so we move on. And this is the way the scientific uh, method works. We, uh, you know, ex experiment in ways that tell us when we've gone wrong. And so ideally we would fail a lot. The problem is when you translate that into popular culture, it raises questions for the people who are experiencing your exhibition of expertise. Uh, it raises questions about, well, how, how good are you really? If you're failing this much, what, what should that tell me? Um, and because, you know, if I'm not an expert, I'm going to fail too. And so the question is, how do I detect your expertise over and above all these failures? And so I think there are lots of interesting questions. Uh, but I think House is a good exemplar because there's no question that he's an expert in medicine. There's no question that he has this really deep, rich grasp of uh, anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, right? The, you know, uh, uh, and, and so you know, there, there's no question about that, but it, it demonstrates the, the ways in which expertise doesn't always look in a, a like an ideal sort of practice. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of people who are skeptical about expertise. We're seeing that a lot now with coronavirus. I know I have plenty of friends who say, well, the, the experts got it wrong to begin with. So now why should I take anything they say seriously? Right. So, you say don't wear a mask one time and it, yeah, or, it shapes yeah. the whole pandemic. Yeah. right? So. Or they thought it was going to be this number early on. And now they think it's going to be this number of people. Now we should just throw out everything they say. So how do, how do you deal with that kind of thing? Yeah, well, and, and dealing with it's an, maybe another yeah. question, um, but yeah, it's certainly true that uh, you know again the like the house examples like any time you get it wrong or any time you you've you've learned something and had to readjust or adapt to new information, uh, that's going to raise questions about how much of an expert you were, uh, and there are a number of different factors that affect whether experts are are trustworthy. And there's this great there's this great little um, scene in the new show Space Force with Steve Carell. Mm -hmm. You know, Steve Carell is this sort of, uh, you know, ideologically, you know, embedded sort of entrenched sort of person. Uh, he's trying to launch this uh, satellite into space that's going to have this defense function, right? He's very much uh, a tool of a certain kind of administration. Um, but he goes to his scientists, you know, you know, he's got this scientific team uh, that's been assigned to him. He doesn't necessarily like them, but right, they've been assigned to him. And so they're, they're commenting on this launch and they say, oh, look, we can't launch. We can't launch. The conditions are just not right. And they go through this big, long list of reasons that they can't launch. And, um, 
and Steve Carell is like trying to, uh, you know, look for other reasons. And of course, Eddie comes up, the janitor, who's like, no, no degrees whatsoever. Uh, he comes up, he says, yeah, you should totally go ahead and launch. And so Steve Carell's wanting to use Eddie, right? But he knows that that's really irresponsible. And so he asks one question of the, the lead scientist. He says, what are you holding? And he says, an umbrella. And they talk about this umbrella and the guy sort of, you know, really makes fun of Steve Carell for asking him about his umbrella. Do you, do you think that, you know, you need to examine it, you know? And Steve Carell says, nope, I've, that answers my question completely. And of course, it's clear blue sky and, you know, it's only about a 20% chance of rain. And so what Steve Carell says is, you know what, I'm going to launch anyway, not because I disbelieve all of the scientific information that they told me. It's because we judge risk differently. I have a different standard for what I'm going to base my decisions on. And it's interesting, right? Because the expertise, I mean, like set aside Steve Carell's character, right? The sort of limitations of his character. It raises an interesting point that he doesn't actually discount their expertise with rocketry. But the fact that they weigh risk differently than he does suggests that he's willing to take a risk they aren't. And that's good enough for him. Yeah. And so when we think about people who are telling us things about coronavirus and, you know, uh, the, the mask mandates and lockdowns, one of the things we hear is, uh, let me take my own risks. Like, I'm the judge of my risks. And so this is the response. And so it's an interesting thing that you ask, okay, well, you clearly have expertise in a domain. Does that expertise extend to giving me advice about my life or about my mm -hmm. decisions? Seems like there's another domain implicated here. My values, the implications for me, how much risk I'm willing to take. And of course, that's just one example. Uh, you know, experts can have conflicts of interest, even though they're really good at their field. Experts can get overly politicized and entrench into views in order to protect, um, you know, a consensus of a certain sort. And so there are lots of different dynamics that affect whether expertise is taken up as trustworthy in a society. And I think it's really difficult to navigate. So, you know, what do we do with it, the skepticism? Uh, it, it's tricky. I think there's going to have to be a lot of social structures in place that help bridge the gap between non-experts and experts in a lot of these cases. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about, you know, pandemics have sort of been in this general category of things that people have been like, well, how seriously should we take this risk? You know, um, I'm thinking of others like threats posed by space debris and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and and uh, the threats, potential threats posed by artificial intelligence. Right? People disagree about where we should put our resources and how much, how seriously we should take, how, to what degree we should count those things as risks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then climate change, of course, all the, right. the various yeah. threats so posed by climate real change. Real risk to future generations more than our own. So. Yeah. 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 You, you might yeah. think... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so related to that, um, you know, we started watching Space Force, and it, it's been fun. And so you're referencing the the pilot, F, um, or I think uh, the second one. We we accidentally watched the pilot second. Yeah, yeah, but I think the the launch was the first one. Um, but at, at anyway. any rate, um, <laughs> yeah. So there, his um, values are. Um, you know, running afoul of the experts' values, right? He, he has a lot of reasons for getting the satellite up. It's a new program. He wants it to succeed. He's, um, you know, deeply in competition with the head of the Air Force, whose job he wanted and all of that. Um, but that strikes me as sort of a very different phenomenon than what we're seeing with the distrust of experts in COVID. Um, and in a lot of cases, we've othered the experts, or we haven't, but some people have othered the experts. 
they they sort of become the the enemy, right? They've they're part of the um, the liberal elite now, which is is a crazy thing because I suspect most of them aren't liberal or you know they're evenly distributed, right? It doesn't it doesn't track the way say being a journalist might track or being an academic. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so there's a separate set of issues, right? Um, one one is it okay to sort of mitigate what the expert tells us, right? Um, I'm told I have cancer. Um, the expert says, this is the treatment that will save your life. <clears throat> but I'm thinking, but it might cause me to put my career on hold and I might be willing to take a risk and delay treatment or accept another treatment. Um, but that's, that's very different from the person that just hears the expert and thinks, oh, you're on the wrong side. You're, mm -hmm. you're, you know, you're, you're bad. I don't want any part of what you're telling me on principle. Yeah. Yeah. And I think medical <coughs> decisions are another case where you've got somebody who's there's no question about their competency in a field. They've gone through years and years of training. They have degrees. They have experience. Um, but then the question becomes, is it right for me? Is that recommendation, is that suggestion, is that, is that right for me? And in those cases, there is no concern about a nefarious motive. And so now add that to COVID where you've got people who are experts and they're making advice and you're saying, well, look, this, what does that mean for me? But now you add on top of that concerns about nefarious motives, uh, you know, collusion with pharmaceutical companies to, uh, you know, um, develop vaccines and get, you know, billions of dollars, collusion with politicians who want to override our individual rights. Uh, yeah, and so once you combine those with all those other con you know, concerns about motives, uh, th then the situation becomes infinitely more complicated. You know, we, we see this a lot in hospitals and critical care cases where a doctor will explain that a family member is at the end of life and the family member will say, well, I, I get it. You've got your book learning, but I know aunt so-and-so and, -so, and mm -hmm. she's a fighter and she's not going to give up and we're not going to give up on her. Uh, you know, and so it's like taking their local knowledge, which is not always to be discounted. Sometimes local knowledge really does matter. Um, but it's, it's saying, look, this is a reason to push back against your expert recommendation in this area of uncertainty. You know, it's a great example in pop culture of um, politicized expertise is, um, did you, I know you did, Richard. Have you seen the, did you see the, I think it was HBO series Chernobyl? No, I didn't. Oh, it's it's great <laughs> because you've. I mean, I th I I think maybe even at the time it was a commentary on the the Trump administration. You know, yeah. um, just the, you've got these experts that know what's going on, right? And and <clears throat> they're saying this is really really dangerous. And all the people that are in charge of actually making the decisions, the policy decisions, are like, no, I don't think it's as dangerous as you think it is. And then obviously we all know what happened. So yeah, yeah. everything came from the Politburo and they just send people in to clean it up with shovels, right? They're, right, right. right. Um, oh, all yeah. this waste, yeah. Yeah, great, um, great documentary if you get a chance or limited series. Yeah, really good. So what do you think it's reasonable for us to expect from experts? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that, you know, there's a very difficult um, path for experts when they when they come into the public sphere and talk to non-experts. It's one thing when experts are talking to other experts. You know, there seems to be fairly clear standards for the sorts of things they can reasonably say. There's ways of challenging their expertise, whether it be you know sort of publicly at a conference or in published peer-reviewed articles or uh, other other commentary-style uh, venues. I think when they come into the public sphere. 
there's a whole different set of standards. And I think one set of standards is going to be, you know, the, the things that people expect of experts, which can be overly idealized, for example, not failing too often, not failing in ways that make them look disingenuous or uh, have a conflict of interest. And so there's a high bar for experts to demonstrate their competence in a way that's accessible to non-experts. And so I think that, you know, there's a, a an expectation that they will, will speak in a language that non-experts can understand to the degree that they need that language. So, for example, even in medicine, right, we, we encourage physicians to speak in plain language to patients, but we don't expect them to tell everything. We don't expect them to explain how morphine works in a physiologic pathway, right? That, that's not the sort of information that patients need, even if a doctor could do it with another doctor. And, and so I think that there's this there's this burden to speak in a way that, that non-experts can ex access. I think there's a burden of transparency with respect to the process by which they got to their decision. So these can't be idiosyncratic experts. These can't be, um, you know, pundits who haven't had their views sort of vetted in, in certain ways. And so I think that, uh, that, that transparency really matters. I think one of the, uh, the one of the, challenges, for example, with something like the International Panel on Climate Change is the number of competing voices that are involved in the process uh, actually change the outcomes in some ways, right? They, they make a lot of concessions for the sake of consensus. And so on one hand, you're, you're feeding the public's desire for scientists to have a consensus, but you're doing so at the expense of sort of watering down some of the language. Uh, for example, the claim about uh, anthropogenic climate change was softened because of one lobbying group, um, mm. but it was in the name of consensus. So the question is, what does the public need more? Do they need the consensus uh, or they, do they need experts speaking what they truly believe, you know, sort of not softened for the sake of the consensus? Yeah. Uh, and so I think it's got to be balanced. You know, one one uh, group that was putting out public information on vaccines did a focus group with their community. And the number one concern of the focus group was, are these going to be mandated so that I am required by law to vaccinate my children? And so the people that writing the document said, you know what, we need to put that up front. Because if we don't address that concern first, nothing else we say about vaccines is going to be meaningful to this this audience. Uh, and yeah. so I think it's a constant negotiation between experts and non-experts about expectations and what experts can provide. Everything that you just said there um, addresses Rachel's question about, you know, what can we expect from experts? Um, what are the responsibilities of the non-experts in this? Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think this comes back to sort of traditional questions about epistemic responsibility. You know, what is our responsibility as knowers to get the best kinds of information? And we know, you know, those of us in philosophy, we know just how difficult it is to navigate through uh, rhetorical ploys and bad evidence and, when you know, to read scientific papers that, you know, we don't really know statistics. It's mm -hmm. very difficult for me as someone who wasn't trained in, in statistics or research methods to read a scientific paper. And so I can only expect so much of myself uh, when, I, when exhibiting this responsibility. And so I have to figure out different strategies for weighing and assessing experts. And so, yeah, I think the, the, bar, the burden is high and I think there's a lot of strategies we can use. And, and I think that some people are gonna do it better than others. And the, the you know, um, one of the one of the things that I'm coming to, and some of the, the one of the papers I'm working on, is uh, 
the sorts of evidence that a novice could use to assess experts. And so, for example, you know, the consensus issue is, is a big issue for me um, because I think that the consensus kick, sorry, wow, getting tongue tied. <laughs> I think consensus claims can be distorted in many ways. And so I think rather than mere consensus among a group of experts, I think what we need is uh, meta expert consensus. I think we need people who can all speak to a um, specific issue from different domains uh, to come to some sort of agreement about the best plan forward. Because I think what happens is if experts get too narrow, too subspecialized without talking with others, they can miss certain relevant aspects. And so I think, for example, the, the COVID thing is just such a, such a, uh, a marvelous uh, example, and we're going to look back on it and I think tease a lot out of this, but the fact that you've got independent epidemiologists, infectious, infectious disease doctors, um, public health officials, um, philosophers, microbiologists, you know, people from a variety of different disciplines coming together and identifying over time, right? We didn't, we didn't know at first, and so it's a learning process. So we're seeing it in real time come to consensus, <clears throat> what might be called natural consensus about some of these things, like the mm -hmm. effectiveness of mask wearing, the effectiveness of other kinds of PPE, uh, the effectiveness of distancing, uh, the, the nature of the transmission, whether fomite or airborne. I think that we're coming, we're seeing natural consensus in real time. And I think that's exciting because I it think that's been, the yeah. main tool that novices have. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And now I want to launch into a whole diatribe about student evaluations. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the the, the layperson saying, well, I think you're not very good at being a professor. <laughs> you're really good at being a professor. And they literally know nothing about what goes into being a professor. But, um, the other thing, when you said meta experts, exactly. I went yeah. down this Sosa-esque rabbit hole in my mind where I now need meta and meta and meta meta justification for my expertise. Um <laughs> But I've been teaching right, Sosa right. a lot lately. Okay, so um, you'd mentioned something um, in our prior conversation about um, the creationism episode of It's Always Sunny. Um, yeah, I think this ties right into the last question about the sort of responsibilities of, of non-experts. Uh, you know, one of the, there's this great episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where one of the characters is, you know, a creationist. And he's going to convince his evolution-believing friends that they should be creationists too, or at least that they should not place as high a, a, a warrant in the creationist's claim. And so he starts with this, you know, this rhetorical strategy, which, you know, is we see this a lot in politics, right? He says, well, like, I hear the experts, but I don't have to believe them because I'm an American. I, right? <laughs> I, I, I have the right to my own beliefs. And so, number one, I don't have to. Uh, number two, experts are wrong sometimes. Right? <laughs> and he sort of cherry picks some examples of when experts are wrong. And so this is that house example. It's like, well, what do you do with, with the fact that they're, they can be, they can be wrong? And of course, they're still not convinced. The folks, you know, they're, they're like, no, well, of course, these are, these, this doesn't tell us anything about whether creationism is true and evolution is wrong. Um, but then he goes in this really interesting direction where he, uh, he says, well, um, you know, I believe on, on faith. And, uh, and so he starts getting challenged on that. And so he pushes back. He says, so have you read all of these scientific articles about fossil records? And have you evaluated the data yourself? And 
one of the guys goes, well, no. So you believe on based on the testimony of people you've never met that something written in a book is true. <laughs> Sounds like you believe on faith. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, we've got this really nice rhetorical strategy for mitigating seeming claims to clear expertise uh, and of course this is the problem with with uh, all of the different ways that expertise can be distorted from the time it leaves an expert's mouth till it gets into society and this is a big challenge for non-experts to, to sort of figure out how to wade through the morass of this that's just proliferated through social media in order to get at uh, you know why should I believe, right? It's not just that he believes people he hasn't met who wrote something down in a book. It, that's not the only thing, but he doesn't have the tools as a non-expert to explain why he should believe this, this group of people who wrote a book versus this group of people who wrote a book. And I think that's mm -hmm. the challenge. So what else is required of expertise in addition to competence? We've kind of danced around that idea, but... Uh... Yeah, and again, I think that's going to depend partly on the questions that are asked as to what's required, because I think the next big issue is how you acquire it. It's not going to be just, um, for example, even if expertise is primarily about knowledge in a field. So, for example, say art history, it's a very knowledge-heavy sort of domain. But it wouldn't just be racking up a set of claims, you know, a, a sort of, you know, file full, like a, a you know, a, a book. Uh, a book is not an expert, but it sort of transmits expertise. And so the question is, what is it about the expertise there that's doing work over and above just the set of claims that may be true? And I think that's going to depend on the ability to understand and use and engage with that information in a way that is productive for learning new information in that domain or for solving problems in that domain or answering un as, as yet unforeseen questions in that domain. And so I think it's a, an, a, the competence includes, even in knowledge-heavy domains, the ability to do something with information, to see connections, to understand where those connections came from in the course of the development of the domain. And so I think an art historian is an interesting example because you know, they can talk about art history, not just list a bunch of claims about art history. Yeah, I, I, I've been thinking about that general question about, you know, the, why experts would be valuable over and above the particular claims that they know that might be written in a book. And I, I was thinking about it in the context of um, schools reacting to potential financial doom <laughs> because of coronavirus, you know, gutting their departments, like getting rid of philosophy departments or getting rid of various uh, branches of the social sciences and humanities. And, and, uh, and just this idea that this is kind of sort of a popular notion in Utah, actually, or, mm -hmm. or some people are articulating this. But, oh, there are whole, a whole disciplines we should just get rid of because uh, they, they, they don't lead to employment, right? Um, or at least they claim they don't lead to employment. And yeah, I'm thinking... Philosophy is doing pretty good in that respect, but... Uh, yeah, but people have floated those ideas. Yeah, it hasn't been yeah. successful, but, it, you right, know, in, our, right. in the state legislature. And it's like, well, it's, it does seem, for the reasons that you mentioned, that it's important to have actual experts and not just books full of claims, but people who can serve that important role. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. And I, I think there's interesting examples of how expertise is packaged and distributed to make learning easier. And so for example, like I mentioned the training techniques that go into, you know, training Olympians. 
it's not that the Olympians aren't really doing amazing things, but the way they got there is very different than they got there 50 years ago. The sort of training techniques have improved. And so experts were required in order to understand how training improves performance. And I think the same thing happens when we develop interesting tools like, um, you know, my, my dad's a phenomenal mechanic for cars pre the era where they had computers on board to control everything. Um, and, you know, he can't work on contemporary cars, but there are these machines that, you know, experts developed and they give to people right out of high school who can go to a mechanic shop and learn to use the machine and fix cars just as well as my dad could the old cars, mm -hmm. you know, because the machine transmits this kind of sort of packaged expertise. But you still have to have expertise somewhere in the line, whether it's expertise to use the machine, expertise to create the machine, expertise to create the car. You know, it's, it's sort mm -hmm. of interesting. You need those experts in order to have that, um, that, that sort of understanding necessary to get things to work. Well, great. So I guess one more question uh, is if people want to read your book, where can they get it? Yeah, yeah. So the book's available at uh, it's, it's published by Bloomsbury. And so you can get it on Bloomsbury's website um, and then all of the other major outlets, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. And yeah. Great. Well, thank you. Um, nice talking to you today. Yeah. yeah thanks for having I me. It's been it. a lot of fun. It has. Thanks. Okay, right. What are we liking this week? Well, we were waiting anxiously for the fourth season of The Crown to come out, and it did. So we've been watching that. Yeah, and and, enjoying it. Yeah, and it's great. Um, I think so far this is my favorite season, and and I was sort of surprised that that I felt that way. Um, this is a part of the history that I know and know well, um, and I was you know really enjoying the other bits. Because I didn't know it all well. I you yeah. know, knew the big picture. Um, yeah, um, Churchill was prime minister and, and so forth. Um, but you know, it, it was very interesting to learn that stuff. Mm -hmm. And now I'm getting kind of a different thing, whereas I'm getting a presentation of something that, that I lived through and I'm up on, and yet um, liking that even more. Mm -hmm. and so it's great. The performances yeah. are good. It focuses a lot on Princess Di. It's interesting. I think that the, the structure of it... Um, matches the, the the public perception of things when uh this event was actually taking place and all of a sudden uh in our stage in the thing lady die has mm -hmm. become the star of the show yeah yeah and <laughs> right behind her is margaret thatcher so these are mm -hmm. two two characters that that um weren't there in the previous seasons um, I'm loving what they're doing with Prince Andrew. And in fact, next time I teach the empty set, <laughs> I'm going to teach, I'm going to talk about Prince Andrew in this. I mean, we haven't seen the whole thing, but I'm not much of him. Very um, little of Edward. Yeah. Uh, and Gillian Anderson plays um, Margaret Thatcher, and I bet she's going to get an Emmy for this. She's just amazing. You've been lobbying for that. Okay, Rach, that's a wrap. Another episode is in the can, and once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. Please visit our webpage, that's I think ifan.com, all one word, to find out about upcoming episodes. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to the webpage, click on the link at the top of the page that says Donate, and follow the instructions. As always, your support is greatly appreciated. 
Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. It helps. See you next time.